Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. Brought up with me a set of scales. For a long time, of course, scales were used as a method of measurement in the marketplace, right? A way to make sure you're getting what you're owed. You wanna be sure that you get what you paid for and they wanna make sure that you're paying for what you're getting and so scales were used as a way to make sure everything was fair. In more recent years, I think we would associate this symbol of scales with uh, justice. Like if you go to the Department of Justice in DC, there's a statue, an image of the statue, Lady Justice. Can you picture her? She's got the blindfold on and she's holding out the scales. And it's meant to communicate that, look, no matter what you look like or where you're from, no matter what your story or background might be, that ideally, we live by the scales. That everyone gets what they deserve. That's kind of the scale approach to life, that you put your life and your decisions, all the good and all the bad, and you see how it comes out. Everybody gets what they deserve. But what's interesting is if you take this image of scales and Lady Justice and you trace it back, you can trace this back to uh, ancient Rome. When I was in Rome about a week and a half ago, I spent some time studying some of the gods and the goddesses that they worshiped in first century Rome. And it's kind of amazing to see the parallels to what would be our modern day idols in the Western world. But one of the goddesses I studied about was the goddess that was known as Justicia. And the image that you see of Lady Justice is basically that goddess. They worshiped the goddess of justice who held the scales. In fact, when Jesus was alive, Tiberius became emperor of Rome and he built a temple to the goddess Justicia, where people could go and worship the scales. That's, that's how seriously they took the scales. And so, so the scale approach to life is pretty popular these days for us. That's how most of us approach our worth, our value, other people's worth and their value. It's how we tend to approach and evaluate ourselves. It's how we tend to evaluate people that we work with or who work for us or who we work for. Everybody has a way of getting put on the scales eventually. And I think we like this well enough when it's the Department of Justice, but like if this was the symbol for your home growing up, like if you had a mom or a dad that put you on the scales and you just never felt like you were Measuring up, never good enough. Like some of you, it's been decades since you lived under the same roof with mom and dad, but like you are living your life driven by the scales, trying to somehow do enough good, trying to somehow earn favor and love and just to hear, I'm proud of you. You, you wanna hear that because it felt like during those formative years, you just couldn't get there. Or for some of you, this would be the symbol of your marriage. or it feels like your best is never enough. You're trying hard, but you don't really know what unconditional love looks like because as hard as you try, it feels like you're still letting your spouse down. Like that's the one thing you're really good at is disappointing your spouse. And, and it just becomes exhausting to the point 
where maybe that pressure has caused you to withdraw and you don't even really try anymore. Or you do this with each other. You both kind of hold each other on the scales, putting pressure on each other. And I, I think for a lot of us, this was what we would say is the symbol for work. And again, some of that makes sense, right? Like you get what you deserve. And, and yet, if you spend most of your life working and your value and worth is determined by the scales, it can be exhausting. And I, I think if we were honest, we'd say for a lot of history, this would be the symbol of the church. Some of you grew up in a church of scales where it felt like every week the pastor, preacher got out the scales and said, you're not getting it done. And you tried hard, but you felt overwhelmed with guilt and shame and it was never enough. Or maybe you did something that was so you know, bad enough that you didn't think you could ever do enough good to somehow even it out and you weren't kicked out of church, but you knew and everybody else knew you were never gonna do enough good to somehow balance it. And so that became the symbol of your faith and it just was too exhausting and it was too much and you walked away from it. Life on the scale sounds okay for other people, but when we're talking about ourselves and we know how often we come up short, eventually the scale approach to life leaves us feeling pretty lonely, pretty discouraged. It causes us to build up walls of shame and guilt because we know who we are and we know what we've done. Ultimately, the scales tell the story that we are not worthy. And so this was the approach that the Romans took to life. It's kind of our Western world approach. And Paul's gonna to talk to us about not living life by the scales as we study the book of Romans. By way of review, Paul had not been to teach in Rome. And so the book of Romans is a little bit different than other letters we study in the New Testament. Typically, Paul would visit a city like Corinth and he would teach, he would lay that foundation for them. And then he would write them a letter back and say, hey, remember what we talked about? Or he'd go to Philippi, then write what we know as Philippians. And he'd say, hey, let me remind you of this thing I told you when I was with you. But because he hadn't taught in Rome, he's not reminding them. It's not a recap. Instead, it's a more in-depth study. He hadn't been there to lay the foundation with his teaching. And so he goes into to greater detail as he talks to us about scripture and the gospel. And so we're spending the whole year studying the book of Romans. I would just love to challenge you to dive into this, to really lean in to this study. Because as you do, we're, we're gonna... We're gonna grow together. We're gonna have a deeper understanding of God's love for us and the grace that's available to us through Jesus. Um, so Paul writes to them and he introduces himself. We saw this last week in verse one. And he says, I, Paul, a servant. That's how he introduces himself. Not great. Like if I was his writing coach, I'd be like, uh, you know, let's find another way to say that. Because servant is not very impressive, especially to the Romans. The word Paul uses for servant would actually be translated as slave. There were six other words he could have used to say servant. It's actually slave. We say servant because it's just is a little bit easier to swallow, but, but really slave. And Rome is a city that knew all about slaves. About a third of the population was slave. And, and so they had this whole social spectrum. Again, it's the scale approach where your value, your worth is determined by your education, uh, by your power, by the influence you had, by the family you were born into. But Paul comes out in this letter and just says, I'm a servant. 
And here's the point I think he's making is I want you to know me not by what I've accomplished, but by what has been accomplished for me. Like this is the gospel. It's not about what you've done. It's about what God has done for you through Jesus. And the most important thing for you to know about me and the most important thing for me to know about you is not what I've done or what you've done, but what's been done for us. And so Paul, from the beginning, doesn't make it about himself or his accomplishments. Instead, he points to the fact that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And I think that's tough. I think it's a tough way to start this letter. These are people who put so much weight on having the right kind of resume. I was uh, reading this week about people who had been rejected from different jobs because they tried a little too hard to dress themselves up in their resume. And um, one employer was reading the cover letter for a prospective employee, and then when he got to the bottom, he noticed that the person who wrote the cover letter had the same last name as the person he was interviewing, asked some questions, and found out it was the guy's mom who wrote a cover letter for his resume. It's one way to make yourself sound a little better than you are. Um, Under the interested in the position, um, someone just said to keep my parole officer happy. So not trying too hard there. Under achievement, one person said that they graduated in the top 85% of their class, (laughs) which if you don't get that, probably means that you graduated in the top 85% of your class. Another person said under achievement, uh, fluent in multiple foreign accents, which I really, I really like that. And then under qualifications, one lady wrote, my twin sister has an accounting degree, so I know I can be good with numbers. And we, we find ways to try to make ourselves sound a little bit more impressive. I mean, I think we almost do this instinctively. Almost everything we say and do, the stories we tell, the things we post, we filter through this, how can I tip the scales? How can I impress people with what I've accomplished or who I am or how I look or what I've done? And, and that would have been tempting for Paul as he writes to these people in Rome who put a lot of stock in those things. In verse seven, he shifts from introducing himself to talking about the people he is writing to. And again, he's gonna focus on some things that are true of them, not because of what they've done, but because of what God has done for them. So verse seven, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, to all who are loved and called. And so one of the things we're gonna study this year together is understanding our core identity. There are a lot of ways culturally that we would be encouraged to identify ourselves. A lot of pressure really to find our certain tribes and here's what's important about me and here's what makes me different than you. The words loved and called are core identity words, meaning that these are some of the truest things about you. That your identity as a person comes because you have been called by God, loved by God not because of what you've done or accomplished, but because of what, again, what he's done for you. And when you understand like this is who I am and you start to live out of that kind of love and that kind of calling, it gives your life purpose, it gives your life meaning, it it changes what you see when you look in the mirror, it changes how you understand your value with other people. I was uh, reading about a a well-known experiment, you might've heard of it before. It's come to be known as the SCAR experiment 
They brought in these volunteers and they separated them into different cubicles. And they had makeup artists come in and um, attach like this hideous looking scar on the face of each volunteer. And then the volunteers were gonna be sent out into this public area and they were to keep track of how people treated them different because of the scar on the face. But before they got sent out, the makeup person said to them, hey, whatever you do, don't touch it, like don't mess with it, and I'm gonna make one more adjustment before you go out, and they removed the scar completely. But the volunteer didn't know it, so the volunteer goes out, comes back, and reports what they discovered. Almost all of them came back and said, People were more rude to me. People were, people were less kind to me. And quite a few of them made this statement, everyone stared at my scar. There's no scar there, but they thought it was. They were told this is who you are. They were living out of that identity and that changed how they saw themselves was also changed how they saw other people see them. I think we're seeing a lot of that in our culture where we're being told, hey, here's who you are, and, and because this is who you are, this is how other people see you, and we start to live out of these different identities, but the Bible would teach that the truest thing about us is not our scars. It's about what God has done for us. We'll celebrate that together in Romans. So the people in Rome needed this. They needed to hear, look, the truest thing about you is not that you're a Jew or a Gentile. Those things might be true of you, but that's not core identity stuff. Truest thing about you is it's not who you are on the scales. It's not your academic achievement. It's not your financial standing. It's not the position that you have or the title you've been given. The truest thing about you isn't the sexual desires you feel. Like that's, that's not your core identity. The core identity, Paul is gonna let them know, is not what other people have said of them. It, it, core identity is not that they are an an addict or they've been a convict or that they've been a cheater or cheated on. Like those things might be true, but the truest thing about them is that they are called and they are loved by God. And when you start to live out of that identity, it just changes how you see yourself and the people around you. Verse seven, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read this as part of the introduction, it feels a little bit, I don't know, it, it, a little cliche. Like if you're writing a letter, you might be like, hey, how's it going? That's sort of what this feels like, kind of this throwaway, like, yeah, grace and peace to you. And yet, it, as I read this, I'm just struck by the fact that this is what I want. This is what I want for you, for me, for my kids, Grace and peace. And I want you to know the grace available to you from God through Jesus. And I want you to experience peace with your creator and with your heavenly father because I know until you have that peace, nothing is gonna feel right. So grace and peace isn't just some throwaway greeting. It is Paul's prayer for the church. It's my prayer for us as a church as we study this together that at the end of this year that we would experience a, a depth of grace and peace that would just mark who we are. Verse eight, he's gonna talk to them about his affection for them. Now, remember as we read these words, he's not met them before. He's not worshiped with them. He knows a few people from his travels, but for the most part, he doesn't know the people that 
are receiving this letter, and yet he has such deep affection for them. And so one of the takeaways from this as we study these verses is that when our value, when our value and identity is determined by the scales, it disconnects us from God, but it also disconnects us from each other. It has a way, the scales have a way of causing us to build up these walls of shame and guilt that isolate us. But when our identity is not determined by the scales, but instead is determined by what God has said of us, that we're loved, we're called, grace, peace, it connects us to him, it lets us know we're right with him, and yet it also connects us more deeply to each other because suddenly I see you differently. Your worth to me isn't determined by the scales. Your worth and value is determined by who you are in Christ. And so it allows us to be connected on a deeper level. So he, he's gonna express affection to them. Look at verse eight. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers all the time. I'm praying for you guys all the time. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I, I wanna be there with you. I wish I wasn't writing this letter. I wish I could be there in person. I long to see you so that I, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may mutually be encouraged by one another. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you. <laughs> Look, I have tried to get this trip done. Tried many times, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. In order that I might have, the reason I wanna come to you is that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. And so he talks to them about his affection for them. And there are three words I want to pull out of these verses. And I wanna challenge you to let these three words define your relationships in 2024. Specifically, for some relationships where you have someone in your life that you're supposed to like and you don't like. You know anybody like that? Like you, you want to love them, but you don't love them. Like you wanna have affection for them. You gave birth to them, like you, you <laughs> You want, you want to feel a certain way about, but it's, it's just, it's not there. And, and so how do we grow in affection for people? And these three words, I think, if, if we'll be intentional with them and let them define our relationships for 2024, it'll have a significant impact for us. So here's the first word, it's prayer. It's the first word. Paul begins by expressing his affection and he tells them, I, I am praying for you. And there are a couple things about his prayers for the people. First, his prayers are marked with thanksgiving and gratitude, where he is looking at them and seeing things in them that he is grateful for, he's thankful for, and so he begins his prayers with gratitude. Second, we see that his prayers are consistent. He's intentional, they're constant. Constantly praying for them, he says. And I would just tell you that Nothing will have a greater impact on your relationships with people, especially people with whom you need to grow in affection for, than, than just praying for them. So here's a question I wanna challenge you with, all right? What would it look like if you 
said, this year, 2024, I'm gonna pray every day for 10 people in my life. 10 specific people. You're gonna identify them this afternoon, put their names in your phone, and every day you're gonna pray for them. Doesn't have to be long or drawn out, but you're gonna pray for them every day by name. Some of you know what'll happen. It will impact them because there's a lot of power in prayer for them, even if they don't know they're being prayed for, but it'll also impact you because now you're in, invested and you care about them and you'll find yourself asking questions like, how, how can I pray for you? And then you'll wanna be an answer to those prayers. Like, I just would challenge you to test this, to see what kind of impact it has. You start praying for 10, 10 people every day. I... Um, I was reading a story that a, a pastor wrote about a guy in his church named Bob, and Bob was an insurance salesman who had become a Christian, but Bob was, you know, he was skeptical about prayer and specifically the power of prayer, and did it really do anything? Did it really work? And so the pastor made a bet with Bob, said, Bob, look, let's do this. I'll bet you $500. You pray every day for six months for something that you have no real control over. It's not selfish prayers, like you pray every day for six months. And if at the end of that six months, if nothing significant happens, I'll give you 500 bucks, but if something significant happens, you, you give me 500 bucks. And this isn't a prayer program we offer, but <laughs> it was between this pastor, it was between Bob, and Bob had heard on the news some things that happened, were happening in Kenya, Africa that were difficult at the time, and he thought, well, I have no connection to Kenya. This seems really safe way to get 500 bucks. I'm gonna pray every day for Kenya, Africa. And he began to pray. And as he did, he studied more and he just became more curious. He learned about the country and some of the problems they were experiencing at the time. And, and then one night he was out for dinner and he heard the word Kenya. A woman was talking about Kenya. He leaned in. Apparently she ran an orphanage in Kenya, was talking about that. And he didn't wanna ask her questions because he could feel the money fly out the window, but, but he knew he had to. Like, he's like, I've gotta ask her about that. And she said, you have so much interest in Kenya. Have you ever been? He said, I've never been. She said, why don't you come visit the orphanage? So he did. And when he was at the orphanage, he saw just how desperate they were for some basic healthcare and in need of medical supplies. And he worked in the insurance Field. He knew of some large pharmaceutical companies. And so he wrote to each of these companies telling of this need and, and said, hey, if, I'm, if I orchestrate this, would you be willing to send unsold medical supplies to this country, to this orphanage? And within a pretty short amount of time, that orphanage received more than a million dollars of medicine and medical supplies. The woman from the orphanage called Bob and said, this is incredible. We want to have you come back out here and just celebrate it with us. And so Bob got on his second flight to Kenya and he goes to celebrate. And when he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration and asked Bob if he'd like to go on a tour of the capital, Nairobi. And Bob said, okay. And they went on a tour and they saw a prison where there were some political prisoners being held. And Bob said to the president of Kenya, after asking some questions, that doesn't seem like a a good thing to have political prisoners. Seems like a bad idea. And he went back home and he went back to selling insurance company and he got a call from the US State Department. Is this Bob? Were you recently in Kenya? 
Did you make any statements, perhaps, to the president in Kenya about political prisoners? The State Department explained that they had been trying for a while to get these prisoners released, and the U.S. government just wanted to call and say, thanks, Bob. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob and said, I'm inviting some people to come here to Kenya to pray over a three-day period while I'm appointing um, leaders in my cabinet. Would you come and, and would you pray for three days for me? So Bob, who was not politically connected in any way, boarded a plane and flew back to Kenya for a third time and he prayed over the president, asking God to give him wisdom as the leader of this nation as he appointed new government officials. And look, I'm not gonna make a bet with you, but I bet that if you decided you were gonna pray for 10 people every day, it would have a huge impact in your family in this church, in our community, and I'd be willing to say around the world. So maybe it's nine people and one person that you know well and one person you don't know. Like maybe it's eight or nine people and then you're gonna pray for a specific neighborhood or a specific house in the neighborhood that you just identified. Like you don't even know who lives there. You're just gonna start praying every day for the people who live in that house. But can I just challenge you in your relationships to let prayer be a defining word for you in 2024. Here's a second word that we get out of Romans 1 as Paul talks to them of his affection for them. It's the word presence. You picked up on that where he just telling them, ah, I wish I could be there. Uh, verse 11, I long to see you. You can hear his heart. Like he wants to be there. It's something about being present. And so here's the challenge for me. And I'm hoping I'm not the only one. I will oftentimes settle for proximity instead of presence. Meaning, hey, if I'm in the same room, that counts. Doesn't that count? But I'm not fully present and I'm not given a lot of focus or attention. And so this is something that I'm asking God to help me with. And it's been something I've asked him to help me with for a while. I think I've grown in it, but I think I've got a long way to go. Uh, for me, a convicting Oh, a convicting moment as it happened to me as a dad with this. I mean, going back a few years, my middle daughter was probably, I'm gonna say nine or 10. And we were playing charades as a family, although we didn't call it charades. This was something that would have been a little lame. It was something a little different. Than that, but it was basically charades. And, and she pulled a piece of paper out of the hat and had to act that out. Everybody else is supposed to guess it. And the piece of paper she pulled out, and of course we didn't know this, but, but it said dad on it. So my middle daughter needs to do something that everybody else will recognize, oh, that's dad. And without even thinking, having to think about it, here's what she does. And everybody said, dad, that's dad sitting in the room, but he's on his computer. He's um, here in proximity, but not fully present. And everybody kind of laughed. I didn't laugh. I just immediately felt this conviction. And I, I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Like for some of you, if, if your name was in that hat, like the person would be, like this would be there. And people would know. 
Because we live in a world that's really distracted. Here's the good news about that. The bar's really low. <laughs> that's the good news. Like you don't even have to try that hard. And, and, and people are so used to having this like uh, divided attention and this distracted presence that when somebody comes into the circle and they're fully present and they're authentically engaged, the person who's with them can't help but feel like, I think that person really likes me, right? It doesn't take a lot these days. And so one of the things I'm learning here that I wanna challenge you with is that there is a strong connection between these two words of prayer and presence. That if you want to grow in presence, focus on prayer, and the more you pray, the more present you will find yourself with the people for whom you're praying. And so here's what that looks like for me. I will begin my day, I'm trying to do this, where I'll pull up my calendar and I'll see who I'm gonna be in proximity to, and then I'll pray over each of those moments. So in the morning, I'll see that, ah, I've got breakfast with a, with a deacon from a campus, and so I pray for that deacon and family and for that community and that campus. Now, okay, in my office later in the day, I've got, a, I've got an appointment with a campus pastor, and I pray for that campus pastor and his wife and his marriage, and I pray for his kids, and that, just a couple minutes, but I pray over that. And oh, in the afternoon, just, I'm getting my hair cut, I'm gonna pray for the dude who cuts my hair and his wife and his two kids and uh, I'm gonna pray for him. I just kind of go through these moments in the day where I know I'm gonna be in proximity, but I want to be present. And the more you pray, the more present you will be. Um, specifically, I'm asking God to help me be present. I'll give you a few things that I'm asking him for help on and maybe it'll be helpful to you as I want to do what Paul does. I wanna be affectionate to the people I love and care for. I want them to know that. And so a few things I'm trying to do is one, God, would you help me um, practice active listening or deep listening, like this idea of I'm listening to learn, not to respond. I'm, I wanna ask questions about that person. I, when they speak to me, I wanna be able to repeat back to them what they've said to some degree so they can feel heard. God, teach me to do this well. Another prayer that I'm asking God to help me with is to listen with my eyes. Um, this is, I smile because I, I, this should be in quotes with my wife's name, like listen with your eyes. Because I, I'll listen, but I've, I'm just, I'm looking. I feel like I'm a good multitasker. I can listen and look at the screen and be on my phone or look out the window, but it doesn't, it doesn't show presence. Like it doesn't value the person that, that I'm with, right? So God help me with that. And a third thing is God help me make gestures of affection that require attention. Let me go out of my way to say something or do something that's thoughtful enough that the person knows, oh, he really does care about me. Because I know this is true for me, right? When, when someone sends me a handwritten note or when I, I get a, a voicemail prayer from from someone and I listen to them, I, I know how they, they care about me. Like they went out of their way to do something that required their attention. A fourth thing I'm saying is God help me, help me show excitement when I, when I greet someone. I, I'll be honest, I've got this bad habit of like walking into a room and just immediately thinking about like the direction we need to go and what, what's the point of the meeting and why are we here and what, and just kind of getting down to business. Um, for whatever it is, instead of walking into a room and being like, hey, it's, it's great to see you and expressing some kind of 
Um, you mean something to me. And so when Paul writes Romans 1, he takes quite a bit of time to just express his affection in the greeting. And for us, even as we read it, we're like, okay, when are, are we gonna really spend a few weeks just talking about the greeting? Let's kind of get down to the other stuff. And yet, I think what gets expressed in this greeting is something we can all learn from. Right? That I, I want people to know by my greeting that I care about them. So God help, help me with that. Prayer presence, one more word to mark your relationships in 2024, it's the word purpose. He says in verse 12, I wanna be with you so that we will be mutually encouraged. I really appreciate this. Like there's something about encouragement. It, it happens best mutually. It's not to say you can't be encouraged by going for a walk and listening to a podcast or whatever, but, but there's something deep that happens when we do this for one another. I encourage you, I end up being encouraged. It's, it's, a, mutual, uh, it's a mutual experience. Paul says, I wanna be with you so that we can have this spiritual purpose of encouraging one another. Look, I just wanna challenge you this year to be, to be present with purpose when it comes to your church family. Like, I wanna challenge you to be here every week as we go through Romans. I know some of you have gotten in the habit of deciding whether or not you're gonna come to church based on, oh, what are we gonna be talking about? And it's not gonna help me. Or some of you, you know, depending on how you feel, and it's probably not this group because it's really cold outside and you're here. And um, I'm grateful that you, you are. But we need that. And, and maybe you look at it and you're like, well, I don't know that I need it. Well, then don't do it for you. Yeah, do it for someone else. Like we, we need that encouragement. Like even as we sang this morning, we're singing about the hope of heaven. And there's so much encouragement that comes as we sing that, as we declare that, but it happens when we come together. In verse 13, he says, I, I wanna have this kind of relationship with you. I wanna be near you in order that I might have a harvest among you. NLT says, I, I want to be near you to see spiritual fruit in your life. I wanna see spiritual fruit. What would it look like if in our relationships we were committed to seeing each other grow spiritually? If, if you have someone like this, then be really thankful for it. If you don't, this is your year to be that for someone so that you can have someone be that for you. I, I can tell you at the beginning of this year, I reached out to a few people in my life and I said, hey, I, I, I need your help getting some, um, some growth in a few areas. And I specifically reached out and said, I, I want 2024 to be a year where I, I grow in consistency and encourage. I wanna be consistent. That's an issue of integrity. I, I'm not always as consistent as I wanna be. It can fluctuate week to week. So I need you to help me grow in my consistency and I wanna be more courageous. As a pastor, as a father, as a husband, I, I wanna be a man of courage. So I'm telling you, my friends, I need, I need you to encourage me. I need you to challenge me. I need you to help me. I wanna be in a relationship with people where we'll do that for one another. And one of the best ways to do that that I know of is to be in a group. If you're not in a group, if you've never been in a group, uh, what a great time to take this step. 
I know it'll feel a little risky to some of you and a lot of you feel so busy with other things. Uh, would you at least take the step of texting the word groups to 733-733 and just seeing some opportunities to get connected to a group. When you text that, you are not committing your life away for the next year, okay? So just text it, get a little more information. We'd love to connect you so that we can be in relationship with one another in such a way that it brings harvest. And so scales, yeah, this tends to be the symbol that marks our culture as it did in Rome. The scales tend to be how we decide, am I okay with God? Is God okay with me? This is how I have peace with God. Scales tend to be how we relate to one another. I'll be in relationship with you if, if you do a little bit more good but I gotta make sure these scales balance. But the Bible, specifically the book of Romans, would teach us that the symbol of the scales is not the symbol of followers of Christ. We do not live by the scales, we live by the cross. The cross of grace is much different than the scales of justice. And I know that we have people in this church, people who are listening to this, and you think there's like somehow a difference between you and maybe some people around you because you've, you've done quite a bit of good and you kind of avoided all the big things. And so you, like, you know, there's people in this room and they've really blown it, really made some mistakes. And you think the scales are somehow tipped in your favor and the Romans is gonna teach you, mm, no, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no room for judgment, pride. There's just room for thanksgiving and grace and humble dependence on God's forgiveness. And so we want the cross, not the scales, to decide our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace that um, allows us to experience connection to you and to one another. I pray this year that as we study this together, that there would be freedom that walls would be torn down, that grace and peace would be found. God, I believe that that's only found in you, that we can't do enough good to somehow earn our way towards it. There's nothing we can do to somehow balance out those scales. Our hope is in you, Jesus, and in your grace. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.